Have y'all ever been in a situation where you didn't know what the right thing was? Or maybe you've been in a situation where you didn't really know what the wrong thing was? I'm reminded of a story I heard uh, some time ago. A young boy and his friend were working in their garage on a science project. And they were um, to the point where they were painting uh, their creation uh, before the science fair. And they noticed two older boys across the street um, approaching a house. And that house happened to be abandoned. The house had been abandoned for some time. And the two younger boys in their garage, they noticed the, these two older boys start banging on the door and start yelling at the top of their lungs. So the two younger boys quietly close their garage door. They go inside and they call the police. The police come, guns are drawn. They break down the door to the abandoned house because the boys had somehow made it in there. Well, this is how the entire neighborhood found out that that abandoned house had new owners. So they were in shock when they found that out. But have you been there? Have you tried to make the right decision, but you didn't have the right conclusion, or you didn't have the information you needed to make the right conclusion? Today, we're in a sermon series called Let's Be Clear, and we're going to talk about Let's Be Clear about right and wrong. My name is Corey Sargent, and I'm one of the pastors here at Crossroads. And all too often in our lives, we think we know what is right and what the wrong is. We think we know for every decision that we have to make what the right thing is and what the wrong thing is. And if you ask people, where does right and wrong come from, you'll get a myriad of answers. But if you ask enough people, you'll start hearing the same thing over and over. And there's two common things that you'll hear in society today. The first answer you'll hear pretty, pretty common is that society gets to decide what is right and what is wrong. The other answer that, that you'll receive is that the individual themselves gets to decide what is right and what is wrong. So let's break this down. The first answer that a lot of people will give is that society gets to decide what is right and what is wrong. And this is a big word called conventionalism. I don't know how many syllables that is. Eric told me this morning and I forgot. But it's called conventionalism. And this idea that society gets to decide has been around for a very long period of time. I want you to think back to just before Jesus was crucified. Nobody could find fault in him. He was sinless. He was perfect. They couldn't find any fault in him. But society in Jerusalem decided that Barabbas was to be released and that Jesus was to be crucified. Matthew 27, 17 to 26 is the account of what transpired. But it makes, the, makes it clear that the crowd decided what was right and what is wrong. Now, the main reason why conventionalism is a bad idea, this idea that society gets to decide is because it means that we can never judge a past civilization. We can never judge a past society. If that society decided that something was right, who are we to say that it was wrong? Because they decided for themselves. And if a society decided something was wrong, who are we to say, no, no, that's really right? Because they decided that for themselves. Conventionalism is a bad idea. But that always means if society, for a second, if the minority opinion is always wrong, then that means men like Martin Luther King Jr. That means people like Rosa Parks. That means people who went against society were wrong in their views if you believe that society gets to decide what is right and what is wrong. 
People like Hitler, war crimes, any crimes against humanity could never be judged because in that society, they decided what was right in that situation. This is a very, very, very bad place to be. And a lot of young people today are fed this lie. A lot of old people are fed this lie too. So the first blank is where right and wrong comes from. It's not society, not conventionalism. Another common answer you'll hear as to where right and wrong comes from is individuals. And the big word for this is subjectivism. Subjectivism. And this is the idea that I get to decide. Me, I get to decide what's right. Now, this is pretty easy to see. The, the, the problem with this is that what's right for me is normally not what's right for somebody else. See, I may think it's right for me to steal from my neighbor, but I very seriously doubt my neighbor will think it's right for them. Matter of fact, I'm pretty sure they're going to say, no, what's right for me is not to get stolen from. This idea that I get to decide what is right sounds like a great idea to a lot of people in our culture today. But let's look at murder. Let's look at rape. There are going to be people who say that that's what's right for them. And how can we, if we think that the individual gets to decide what is right or wrong, how can we say that a murderer is ever wrong? How can we judge them if we think that the individual gets to decide what is right and what is wrong? Jennifer Lopez has a famous quote. My heart is the ruler of my being. If my heart tells me it's true, that's good enough for me. Well, Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things. The heart is deceitful. What I want is not normally what God wants. I'm a sinner. I have evil thoughts in me. I have evil ways in me normally. And what I want, what I desire, is normally not what God wants and normally not what God desires for me. In the Bible, there's a book in the Old Testament called Judges. And in this, this book, I encourage you to read it, you actually get to see how when the people did what was right in their own eyes, they were not doing what was right in the eyes of God. And the book details the, the judgments that God actually allows happen to the Israelites. And what happens is they were doing what was right in their eyes. So again, that's not what's right in the eyes of God. God would bring judgment, they would repent, and God would bring a deliverer. And those deliverers we call judges. But in this book of the Bible, you see this, this uh, pattern happen over and over, and this cycle happen over and over again. Bad things always happen in Scripture when individuals did what was right in their own eyes. But this is where most people in our culture, that's what they think today. They think that they get to decide what is right and what is wrong. So the second blank in your fill-in-the-blank is as to where right and wrong comes from is not individuals or subjectivism. See, these two concepts are rampant in our culture today. And if you go to any college campus, you're going to hear these pretty frequently. You're going to hear these answers from young people. And the worst part is, is these two ideas have kind of crept into the church today. Not necessarily this church, but the church as a whole, God's church. See, the right answer to the question of where does God or where does a right and wrong come from? It's only from God. It's only from God. It has always been God who decides what is right and wrong. It always will be God who decides what is right and what is wrong. 
Let's say you have a garden in your backyard. Let's say you take the time to build raised beds. You, 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 you meticulously work on that, and, and you, you fill it with soil, and you give it fertilizer, and you plant the seeds. You get to decide what is right and what is wrong for your garden. You know what makes your plants grow best, and you know what will choke it out. That's why you pull weeds. That's why you protect your plants from insects. And see, God is doing the same thing for us. He's pulling weeds out in our lives. And he's protecting us from things that could hurt us. He's whittling away our lives to turn us into being more like Jesus. He's our gardener and he prunes us. And when we fight with God about where right and wrong comes from, we're only hurting ourselves because sin is a cancer. Sin is a cancer. We need to start seeing it like that. Without being treated, it will eat us up from the inside and destroy us. Now, let's make one thing clear. It's not society who decides what is right and wrong. It's not individuals who decide what is right and wrong. It is only God who decides what is right and what is wrong. And it can only be God. Because we have to have an objective truth. We have to have a standard. We have to have a constant. And God is that constant. Conventionalism, individualism, subjectivism rather, they fluctuate from culture to culture and from society to society, from person to person, they fluctuate. God stays constant. We have to have that constant in our lives of where right and wrong comes from. So why do we think that right and wrong is up, to, up for debate? Or more specifically, why do we think that calling sin and dismissing what Bible calls a sin um, is up for debate. Why do we think we get to do that? We're going through First John in this series, and the Apostle John, when he wrote this letter, the church had um, the church had allowed a sliding scale of morality to come in, and he writes about that in this letter. And there's various reasons why he let it in, and the main thing Rod mentioned uh, in the first week of this series, um, they were teaching this group of people was teaching that Jesus was only spirit. And that there's a disconnect between our bodies and the spirit. And what that means is to them was that you can sin and you can do whatever you wanted. Because it wouldn't affect your spirit. And John is writing out against that today. Or against that back then. And today we have people that want to dismiss sin or maybe minimize sin. And I think there's a few reasons why that happens. I think a lot of people today think that the Bible is old-fashioned. They think the Bible is outdated. I'm standing. When I get to heaven one day and I'm standing before God, the creator of all things, the all powerful God, the all knowing God, when I'm standing in front of him one day, I do not have the gumption to say to him, hey, God, you know something? Thanks for giving us the Bible. But, you know, it just it just really it was just outdated for us. You know, I know you're God and all, and I know you see things, you know, the way that, you know, you know everything. But, yeah, you just obviously didn't see that the 21st century had different problems than what the Bible could handle. You know, I, I don't think anybody in here in that moment is going to be willing to say something like that to God. But when we say something isn't a sin, when the Bible calls it a sin, that's exactly what we're doing. When we think that something, the Bible is old-fashioned, that's exactly what we're doing. We're telling God that he's not God because he didn't see what was going on. He didn't know it was going to happen. 
Now, I want to make a point here that I need everybody to understand. And if you have a pen out and you have notes, I encourage you to write this down. I want to make sure we're on the same page here. God does not learn. Did you know that? God does not learn. He doesn't have to. He knows everything. Nothing surprises God. He knew exactly what was going to happen in the 21st century. And if you read Revelation, he knows what's going to happen at the end. The Bible is applicable yesterday, today, and forever. He made it that way. Another reason why I think that we minimize sin or, um, or some people just dismiss sin altogether, we have a phrase here in our church called no perfect people allowed. And it's a concept that nobody in this church is perfect. No Jesus Christ. And I've heard people over the years say that this, this, uh, this phrase that we use in our church gives people a license to sin. Sin is a very serious thing. Very serious thing. And it's a very serious thing to God. And we should take it very serious. 1 John 1, 6 says, If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. John continues in chapter 2, verse 1. He says, My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only ours, but also for the sins of the world. We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar. The truth is not in that person. But if anyone obeys his words, love for God is truly made complete in them. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. Now, I lead a small group. If I was leading a small group right now, in light of reading that passage, I would ask this first question. Why do we need to be in the Bible? Why do we need to be reading the word of God? And it makes it clear that we need to read the word of God to figure out who Jesus is. How can we live like Jesus if we don't know who he is? We don't know how we lived. You know, a lot of us have no problem getting trained for our jobs, our occupations. We have no problem getting trained in sports, having practices. But how many of us are getting trained up in who Jesus is? How many of us are getting trained up on how he lived? How many of us understand how he came to his decisions? How he lived in a culture who thought that there was no constant truth? We've got to get learned up on who Jesus is. This should consume us. If we go back to verse 4, it says that if we say, I know him, but don't do what he commands, then we are a liar. Let's say you're in a relationship, and you, you know that butterfly stage in a relationship. You know, when you talk to the other person on the phone, and you get those little flutters, you know, on the inside, and, you know, you have a conversation on the phone. I love you. No, I love you more. No, I love you more. No, you hang up first. No, 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 you hang up first. You remember, remember those days? If that person on the other end of the phone, if they lied to you, does that show you that they love you? Does it show you that, you, that they love you? Verse 5 says, but if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in him, in them. And a part of obeying God's word is realizing that when the Bible calls something a sin, 
we live our lives that that particular thing is a sin. Some people see scripture as subjective, as open, everything is open to interpretation. It's all gray area. And here in this church, we have 10 statements of faith. And we have those so that we all have a good theological foundation of what the Bible says. And there's some other areas that we can agree to disagree on. But there is one area that we all have got to see black and white, and that is sin. We have got to see sin as black and white. We don't get to decide that the Bible is wrong. We don't get to decide what is a sin and what isn't a sin. That is not our job. That's not our responsibility. And why do you think God calls things a sin? Is it really, do, do we really think it's because he doesn't want us to be happy? We think, do we think it's because he, he doesn't want us to have any fun? He doesn't want us to sin because he knows that sin will eat us up. He knows it will destroy us. He knows it will destroy our relationships. He knows it will destroy our families. And he knows it will destroy us. When the Bible calls something a sin, we need to run away from it. When you say that something isn't a sin, you're basically saying, God, I know better than you. And I like what, God, what Rod said here, not God, what Rod said in the first, uh, the first uh, um, sermon of this series. He said that if that is you, you might as well go get a chisel and a piece of wood and carve yourself an image, put it on your mantle and worship it because you're not worshiping the God of the Bible. You're not worshiping the God of the Bible if you are calling sins not sins when the Bible calls it a sin. Back when John wrote this letter, there were ideas that had crept into the church. And we're no different today. The church as a whole, not necessarily, again, this church, but the church as a whole, there's some ideas that creep into it. And I want to address a few of those today. Some things we are told is wrong, but the Bible says they're right. And some things we're told is right, and the Bible says it's wrong. So I want to go over just a few of these things today. And the first thing that has crept into the church from society is that we, it is wrong to judge. It is wrong to judge. And where they get their, their information from is Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 5. It says this. It says, Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Now, the world seems to know the first part of this passage pretty well. And they normally know it pretty well when a Christian calls out sin. That's when they use that. Oh, judge not lest you be judged. But what does this passage really mean? Are we as believers never to call out sin? Are we as believers never supposed to judge or make a judgment? Is that really what this passage is saying? Because that's what the world wants us to believe. This passage is saying that if you judge people harshly, you will be judged harshly. It's talking about judging with condemnation. How you judge somebody is how there is a time and a place. Let's read verse 3, starting verse 3 again. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, 
when all the time the plank in your own, there's a plank in your own eye. You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. See, Jesus is not only saying here that judgment can be appropriate, he's given us the means by which to do it. He's showing us how to do it. If you're going to judge somebody, the first thing you need to do is look at yourself. You need to examine yourself. You need to make sure that you're right with God. You need to make sure that you're not doing the same thing that the person that you're judging is doing. You've got to do that step first. You've got to look at yourself. Once you do that, then, out of love, we lovingly go and we show our brother, our sister, their sin. Because our job as believers is to show them the truth. We don't do it to humiliate somebody. We don't do it to try to hurt them. We do it because we love them. We do it because we love them. Jesus gives us another example in John chapter 8. This is a pretty common or pretty, pretty popular story. Uh, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. And Jesus, um, they, bring him, they bring the lady to Jesus, and, and uh, Jesus says, uh, if you have, whoever has no sin, cast the first stone. And after Jesus said that, he bent down and started writing something in the dirt. And then one by one, these re religious leaders drop their stones and they leave. And Jesus looked up and he says, woman, no things. Has no one condemned you? And she says, no. And Jesus says, well, neither do I. Now go and sin no more. See, he lovingly judged her in the truth. He said, go and sin no more. He called out her sin. But he did it in love. And he did it without condemnation. We are to help our brothers and sisters out in love, and we are to do it gently. Gently is the operative word there. You know, sometimes we can't see what is right in front of us. Sometimes we don't know that a sin is a sin. And we need somebody to come alongside us, to help us, and hold us accountable. But it's always done in love. Telling the truth should be done in love. Another thing that has uh, crept into the church is this idea that sexual immorality is okay and not a sin. The world is saying it's okay. The Bible is saying it's not. Sexual immorality is defined as any sexual activity outside the bonds of marriage. Now, this brings an interesting question up. What is marriage? Well, since God created marriage, he should be the only one that gets to define marriage. And he defines it very clearly for us in Genesis chapter 2. In verse 24, he says, That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. We can clearly understand from this passage the definition of marriage has always been one man, one wife, and one life. It doesn't, we don't get to change that. So sexual immorality would be anything outside of that, a union outside of, of the bonds of marriage the way Jesus described. Sexual immorality would include, would include a myriad of, 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 are included in this. And I've heard the argument before that, well, Jesus didn't directly address same-sex relationships, so then, therefore, we should allow it. Well, there's a lot of sexual sins that the Bible doesn't address. And I don't think we want to allow those. See, everything 
Jesus summed up in one passage. He set the bar in Matthew 15, 19. He says, For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, and slander. See, Jesus is saying these things are evil. They're wrong. But this idea has crept in from society that they're okay. It's okay. Friday and Saturday nights, a lot of times, are just filled with all kind of immorality. And we think by coming in on Sunday morning that everything is right with the world. We as believers should be seeking a holy, righteous life. A holy, righteous life. When we fail to meet that standard, when the world sees that we're not meeting that standard, they're going to call us hypocrites. And we should be ready for that. But if, 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 we, if we have people living, or if we are living in sexual immorality, and the world sees that, then it's making easy targets for the church. It's making, how are we different? And if you're living in sin today because of some sexual immorality, I just have a couple questions for you. How do you share your faith? How do you tell people who Jesus is? What does that look like? Paul follows up this topic with what he says in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 18 through 20. He says, flee from sexual immorality. All other sin a person commits are outside the body. But whoever sins, sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. We honor God with our worship. We honor him with our praise. We honor him with our tithe, with our offerings. We honor him with the time we spend with him, the time we spend learning about him. We honor him with our lives, but this passage makes it clear we honor God with our bodies. Your body is not your own. My body is not my own. It was bought with a price. And as such, God is the one who gets to determine what is right and what is wrong for us and our bodies. So what do we do? What do we do if we have some view that conflicts with the Bible? What do we do if we have a belief that we think is right or wrong and the Bible says is the opposite or even worse? What, if we th what do we do if we have a sin that we think isn't a sin but the Bible calls a sin? What do we do? And I think it's pretty simple. I think it's pretty clear. We change our views. That, I, didn't, I didn't have to go to school for that. That was just came out. We change our views. As Christians, we let the Bible determine what our views are, what our beliefs are. We don't let society. Society doesn't have a role in that. Society doesn't get to decide, and I don't get to decide what I want to believe. The Bible is the one, is the thing that gets to decide what we believe, and how we should live. See, if you believe one of these lies, and that's what it is, it's a lie. If you believe one of these lies, then you're not putting your faith in the truth. You're not believing the truth. Jesus is the truth. Jesus was the living word, and he gave us the written word. And we call that written word the Bible. 
And the Bible is the only source of truth in this world. So when we have a view that is contrary to the Bible, what we're doing is we're calling Jesus a liar. The Bible is the only source of truth. We've got to start seeing it as, uh, like that. And if your beliefs contradict with Scripture, then you need to change them. I mean, why would you want to believe in a lie? If you know it's a lie, why would you believe in it? It may make you feel good for a period of time. It may be what your heart desires, like J-Lo. But why? If you want to show Jesus that you love him, you will obey his commands. And a part of that is yielding to the word of God and what it says. And when it calls a sin a sin, we accept that and we live accordingly. Today, you may not know Jesus. You may not know the truth. And it's pretty simple. At one point, sin entered the world. And Jesus, God, knew that it was going to happen. And when sin entered the world, it, bro it broke our fellowship and our relationship with God the Father. And Jesus knew this was going to happen, and he knew the only way to restore that relationship and fellowship with God the Father was for him to come and live a perfect, sinless life so that he could pay for the sins of the world. The passage we read said atone for the sins of the world. When he willingly went and died on the cross for our sins, the Bible said he had joy in that moment. He had joy. And he had joy because he knew that his work was finished in the cross. He knew that he made a way for all of us to be restored to a relationship, to fellowship with God the Father. He knew it. And the Bible says all we have to do is repent and believe. It's not about living good. It's not about uh, coming to church. It's about repenting and believing. And we repent. We, we, we ask forgiveness for our sins. And we view sins differently. We start letting the scripture define sins for us. And we believe. We put our faith and trust into Jesus and what he did at the cross. If you're here today and you want to know the truth, we'll have a moment in a, in a, in a few moments so we can talk about how to do that. It says, you know you're... And you may be here today and you know who Jesus is. You know who Jesus is. You know you're going to heaven. But some of your views, whether the ones I mentioned or ones I haven't mentioned, goes against Scripture. I want to encourage you today to let the day the day that you get your relationship right with Jesus. Repent. Change your views. Let the Bible mold you and shape you. Start living according to the word and striving for righteousness and holiness and living the way Jesus did. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, you are a mighty, awesome God. Lord, you know what's best for us. Lord, we're just like one of those plants in a garden, Lord. You're just protecting us and pulling weeds out and making sure we don't choke ourselves out. God, I pray that your words, Lord, leads to a, a life of repentance, a life of holiness and righteousness for the people of this church and this congregation and, Lord, in this community. If you're here today and you don't know who Jesus is, 
today is the day to know. We are not guaranteed. I'm trying to let you understand that every person has a decision to make. One day, each person will either be in a real place called hell or a real place called heaven. If you want to make a decision today to follow Jesus and make him the leader of your life, you can say a simple prayer. Say something like this. If that's you, just say something like, uh, tell him that you're a sinner. Say it in your own words and ask for forgiveness for your sins. Tell him that you want him to be the leader of your life. Tell him that you want to follow him. And that you're putting your faith and your trust into what he did on the cross. Dear Jesus, I pray that there's anybody in here today that made that decision, Lord, that Lord, that we'll have the opportunity to celebrate. Lord, I know that you do in heaven and, and everybody up there does. And Lord, we just thank you for your, Lord, for your awesome power. Lord, for your word. Lord, thank you for giving us a guide by which you want us to live. Lord, we thank you and we give you your, your praise. In your name we